We're here. Hello. Hello. And you are in the you're in the uh, pilot seat tonight, Jen. So you get first. You get first spot. I am. Is that oh, why? Yeah. Is that how it happens? Well, we want everyone to see Lulu being kind of front and center. So that's a really cool design that you put out there. Let the audience know. <laughs> Oh yeah. yeah, it's 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 our Lulu sticker, but this is our Lulu sticker with an Asheville hat and sunglasses. Our real our Lulu sticker doesn't actually have a hat and sunglasses. Well, welcome to Generational Change. I'm Peter. I'm Jen. And we're doing everything the opposite tonight. You know, <laughs> normally I would be wearing the purple shirt, and Jen would be wearing the jersey. But I'm looking like here's coming the sun, and Jen has a new background live from Asheville. Look how good it looks with the purple shirt. Yeah, it blends well. I know. Purple, it is. It's a good, it's a good color. It's a good color combination. So um, as a lot of you guys know, uh, it's obviously not um, the best of times. Uh, we've got ourselves, um, yeah, when we talk about the issues of the Supreme Court, you know, we talk about minority rule and the fact of the matter is uh, this this type of electoral extremism, I think, is going to hurt them because I've spoken with enough conservatives, enough conservative women uh, that really do not like this. Um, they don't actually agree with this idea. Um, and this is coming from women that I know that are pro-life, um, but they do not believe that it is the government's job to effectively tell women what they can and can't do with their body. Um, and so for those that have been adamantly speaking out, Jen, one thing that I found so very interesting is um, how many men are really at the forefront of this. But maybe I shouldn't be surprised. Well, good. It's more than half of our population's rights were just taken away from us. So my my concern is really figuring out logistically what what can be done in the best possible scenario in short term and long term and what we can really do about this, because Marching is great, but it's not like the Supreme Court's going to come back tomorrow and say, all right, all right, all right, you guys, we're just going to change our mind. So it, it's more important that we figure out what we can do state by state to offer women safe access to abortion and uh, just start chipping away as best we can. But, you know, the only thing I can see in the long term is you have to add to the court. You have to expand the court. And I know that there's 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 like different sides to this, but. I feel like it wouldn't have needed to be this way if the Democrats hadn't dropped the ball so many times and for so long. And we like were complacent to some extent and allowed this to happen and knew it was going to come. So I don't know. But the only way to really fix this and not just this, but what's going to come down the pike with gay marriage, um, sodomy and birth control that uh, were listed in Clarence Thomas's dissent or in his uh, concurrence that that's what we need to be like looking at. Okay, well, what can we do when we know what's coming instead of acting like we didn't know, like we did with this? When you have a feckless opposition, there really isn't much that you can do because as I like to point out to everybody, the everlasting image of COVID was Pelosi and McConnell knocking elbows together. That's them telling you, yeah, we're in on this together and you guys are just a bunch of idiots if you think we're not. Uh, this isn't a game. And all too often, the blame always goes to the most vulnerable, the people who need the most help. And the fact that Hillary Clinton still won't go away and wants to remind everybody how she, her crown was wrongfully taken away from her and how if she was on the court, she also would have appointed conservative judges. But it would have been OK if she did it. 
So we're, we're in a place now where, you know, we're, we're staring down, um, you know, a very dark road. But as AOC did say, and rightfully so, um, it's going to be bad and maybe even worse before it ultimately ends up getting better. But because things are getting so I bad. I said that. I've been saying that for years. You had a quote AOC. Well, she just, decided to, she just decided to rip you off. And I decided I'm to just saying, I've been saying it's going to get worse. And I think it's going to be getting inherently more violent. That's true. It is going to get more violent than it already has. And it will continue and it will get worse. And eventually, I hate to say this, but eventually somebody might very of of prominence might very well get killed. And at that point, uh, that's when anarchy is really going to break out because you can't squeeze people this tight for for that long and think that they're not going to react. It's not possible. And we're we're, when we're talking about a primal issue that we're all very concerned about, of course, is health care. And we all know that universal health care is what the overwhelming majority of the American people want. It's really just a question now of not if we get it, but when we get it. And the sooner it happens, obviously, the better it's going to be for everybody. So as we've seen with a number of states, they've made multiple attempts to make universal health care possible, whether it's through traditional voting methods, as they did in Colorado, as they did in California, as they are now currently trying to do in New York, and as they're doing in Washington State. But Washington State is trying something that I don't think anybody else is currently doing. I could be wrong, but Washington State is attempting to have a ballot initiative, which I believe is probably the most likely scenario we're going to have in terms of the people having the say regarding universal health care. Definitely in Florida. Definitely in Florida, that would be the only way that would ever happen. A hundred percent. You cannot rely. And if this moment in time is telling us anything, You know, Thomas Jefferson really said it best. When the people fear the government, you have tyranny. When the government fears the people, you have liberty. And that is the only way we're going to get there, is if the government fears the people. Right now, it doesn't, but maybe that's going to change. We'll see what happens. So without further ado, we are very pleased to welcome back to the show Somebody who is not only an, you know, there's a lot of people who like to say that they're activists, but this is a real activist. Well, here's the key part of the word, Jen, active. So somebody who is active in the streets and is leading is the, I believe, the political director of an organization that we are very, very fond of. You know it. You love it. Whole Washington. Andre Stackhouse. Welcome back to Generational Change. Hey, Andrew. Hello, hello. Thank you so much for having me today. Where's if Peter is in the studio. I'm in North Carolina, but if I was sitting there, I would be putting on my red hat because my red hat is there. I always have to wear the red hat whenever we're talking about the whole Washington ladies and say shout out to Fran with the whole Washington ladies who made me my hat. Do you know Fran? I'll go grab one. It's it's quite exquisite. Uh, I like to remind the people that the people of France. It is not a beret. It is a red beret. Got one here. Got the solidarity pin from uh, Scott DeNoyer in New York. These are handmade solidarity pins. The berets. They don't. They don't go so well with the headphones. Is one of the issues. Oh, it's cute. Actually. So we in France, we have a universal health care and New Orleans should have it here in the United States. Fran actually sent me two berets. And on the day that I got them, I remember opening it up and I put one on a dear friend of mine's head whose name was Mitchell Stolberg, who is someone that um, died because he was a casualty of war of not having health care. So he is somebody who was in that. And it's just 
when we're sitting here and talk and we're still talking about this and I'm sitting there and I know that the other red beret, uh, you know, was for Mitchell and then he died. And it's just, it's a, it's a constant reminder to me that this is very, very screwed up. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's a really powerful symbol. I can tell you a story just from, uh, I think it was just this weekend, but we were just out at pride. We're gathering signatures. There is this person who is just decked out in red and a red beret. And so we run up and we're just like, hey, that's cool. You know, we wear these red berets for healthcare. She turns around and she goes, I know I put it on today because I like what you do and I wanted you all to see me. And so this was actually somebody who had sort of been intending to get involved in the campaign, but hadn't like gotten there yet. Puts yeah. on the red beret, instantly recognizable. We walk up, we have the conversation, and and now she's part of the campaign. So, you know, uh, getting those things like making this impossible to ignore is um, a huge part of what we've got to do. And uh, I think the red berets are a really effective way of doing that. They are, but let me let me ask you this: If this were ever to spread, granted, we believe Florida will be last, but let's just say hypothetically this were to spread. As someone who lives in a heat that you probably can't even fathom for about 11 and a half months of the year, we're going to have to come up with another sort of alternative besides the <laughs> knitted beret. Okay. That's all, I'm, that's all I'm throwing out there. Okay. So think about the people in the heat as we progress to other states. I'm just, I'm, I'm putting that Like a, a red visor or something. <laughs> I'm just saying, like, that's a bit, sometimes it's, it's a little harsh for me to wear that. Like it's, you, you just... You guys just can't fathom, you know, you just can't fathom. Yeah. So how's it going there? It's going really well. As I said, we were at Pride um, all weekend. And so we are passing out these little I signed stickers, wanted to show the sticker since you were talking about that. And then this is our ordinary quarter sheet, but we made a special version for Pride. And uh, we were in the parade and I think we must have handed out about 3,000 of those. We got shout outs from the announcer three times, including whole Washington, I-1471, signed the petition to get universal health care on the ballot. And I think there's probably like 20 to 30,000 people who, as of Friday, had never heard of us and now have heard of us at least once. Wow. wow. Yeah. Well, if, that's, if, that, if that's translating into more foot traffic for the website, obviously that's a great sign. That and this. So again... Uh, hitting up all the shows. Thanks for helping me get the word out. There are a lot of people who, you know, still haven't heard of this. And I think that, um, you know, one thing I've found is just that, like, first, you have to convince people that they deserve universal health care. And then you have to, you know, convince them that there's a way that they can get it. But once you have those two ideas in somebody's head, it doesn't go away. It's very right. powerful. Yeah, nobody's gonna undo that. That's what I always say about like when we're looking at pro progress and whether it's, you know, I mean, yes, I say left, but just people moving in that direction. It's like you you can try to ignore it, but that's the direction this is going. Like you're, you're, you're just making it harder for everybody. But that's that's where we're going. because That's what most people want. It's not a tough sell. And then once it's out there, nobody's going to then go, huh. Yeah, no, we want to give up our health care, which is why I think it should have been declared as an emergency during COVID and grant everybody and had emergency Medicare expansion to everybody. Well, and speaking of emergency, you know, that's kind of the other thing that I think I'm pretty excited to talk about today. Excited is maybe not quite the word, but, you know, there was a moment last year during the pandemic where, where I seriously thought the legislature might just pass this because 
of the urgency of the situation. They didn't do it, right? So we still need to take this to the ballot. But the thing that's happening now is like, okay, so now we're losing Roe versus Wade, right? And so I don't know how many crises it takes to make this case strong enough. I mean, the people are here for it. Um, I always hope that we can, you know, take a shortcut and get the legislature to just pass it for us. Um, but, but the urgency only ever increases, you know, the, the, like we're building our own infrastructure and stuff, and that's always getting stronger. But like the fact of the matter is that the dynamics of the situation is that healthcare keeps getting more expensive. We keep losing our ability to access it. Um, and, and so the case for it just gets stronger every day. We're speaking with Andre Stackhouse of Hull, Washington. Uh, you know, it's funny you bring that up. I really do feel that, as I say, it always has to get worse before it gets better. I think the fact that, you know, Roe v. Wade has been overturned, it has created sort of this sense of, um, you know, urgency, not just because of, you know, women's reproductive rights being put in peril, but you're seeing just what one aspect of healthcare being removed does for millions of people. The prospect of everything being covered. Once it's implemented in the United States, it will never be taken away because then it wouldn't be a riot of a couple of million people. It would be, you know, everybody. And they know that. And that's why I think in this moment, when you're able to tell people, by the way, whole Washington will cover reproductive rights. So once that, um, I think, really resonates with a lot of people, that will have a tremendous impact where do you guys currently stand right now? Because obviously getting the ballot signatures is huge. And that could be the difference between whether or not um, this is going to take multiple election cycles or maybe you get it done in the first shot. Yeah. And, you know, uh, I don't want to give a firm number today just because we collected so many signatures during Pride and we haven't had a chance to, like, collect them and count them again. So I don't want to lowball us. Uh, we had about 15,000, um, you know, last time I checked and uh, we're collecting thousands of signatures a week. Um, and, and, you know, there are big events happening and we're getting a lot more volunteers involved as well. So, you know, we're seeing a lot of growth. We're getting a lot of signatures. We're continuing to build our infrastructure. Um, but it's, it's hard to get like a firm read on where we are because when we report a number, it's fully like collected, counted, data entered, and then uh, what, I what I can show you, actually, I thought you might get a kick out of this. Um, let me show you. So ugh, my house is the, the final resting place of the petitions before they go to the Secretary of State. Right, this so is, you've got stacks. Yeah, this is what a 1,000 looks like. And then I've got wow. a stack here of... Uh, I busted these out for the show, but wow. five of them there. Is that 6,000 you got? At least. That's amazing. And how many do you need is the big question. All across the state. Um, I'm hoping that it's not too long before I'm telling you that I had to rent a storage unit or something. But for now, they're in one of my closets. Keep them safe. Uh, they go to the secretary of the state at the end of the year in just one big batch. So. Okay, so it's an end of year timeline. And how many do you have to collect? Is it a percentage of voters or something like that? Yeah, so it's 8% of the votes for the governor in the last election, which 
unfortunately means that this is the most signatures that we've ever needed to collect um, for any ballot initiative. Uh, the the turnout for the last election, it was a Donald Trump election. It was very okay. high. Um, so, uh, you know, including uh, very generous margins for- Yeah, I was going to say, um, you have to over, you have to have overage. Yeah, yeah. So it's about 325,000 signatures that you need, wow. um, but they recommend a 15 to 20% cushion. Mm -hmm. um, and because I like round numbers, I bumped that up to 23%. So we could just call it an even 400,000. Um, and uh, yeah, so 400,000, I think there's actually another, like the Secretary of State this year uh, was recommending 405,000. But Again, it's a it's a pretty generous margin, um, and uh, you know I think we're going to have a pretty good rate of valid signatures because we we usually know how to check for that. You can register people right there, um, and uh, most people, if they're not able to sign, they might be interested. They kind of start and they take a look and they go, "Wait, do you need to be a Washington voter?" And we we explain. And so um, I don't think we have like an abnormal rate of invalid signatures or anything like that. Yeah, I think this is really amazing. The more like when you're talking about an organization like yours, this to me seems like a much more effective, efficient way to not only get it through, but build your coalition as opposed to just campaigning for, say, whichever candidate supports your mission or spending your time lobbying your state legislators and getting people like this is such an easier sell, I think, to regular people. And then once you sell them and they sign, that's it. You don't have to call and remind them to get out to vote like three times, you know? So like this to me seems like a really the best possible scenario for an organization like yours. I agree. And, you know, I think one of the things about it is that um, ballot initiatives are really hard. Uh, it's, it's a lot of work. It's a huge ground game. And so I think there can be a hesitation to run them, especially because it's so easy to feel like if you run a ballot initiative and you don't make it on the ballot, or if you run the ballot initiative, but you lose the election, that the effort was wasted. I think we've already kind of talked about how we really don't believe that's the case. Correct. It's still, I mean, let's imagine a scenario where we get on the ballot, but we lose the election. I mean, that means that we talked to 400,000 people across the state. We convinced them to take action on universal health care. It might be the like a lot of them. It's the first time they ever even thought about it. You know, sometimes I try to get a signature for someone. I say this is uh, this is like universal health care for Washington. Or I say this is statewide Medicare for all. And they go, oh, I thought we already have that. You know, and so you have to explain to them. Actually, there's half a million people without any insurance in Washington. And by the way, um, you know, the rest of us are underinsured, right? We're talking about making this way more affordable, way more stable and secure. Um, and so, you know, you have to explain it. It's not simple stuff. You know, healthcare policy is complicated and there's been a lot of propaganda released into the public consciousness that you sometimes have to sort of, uh, explain away. But, um, but yeah, I mean, that would be an incredible, number of people to bring into the like movement for healthcare justice, even if we didn't make it this year. So, um, and, uh, I guess the, the, the other thing I'll say is, you know, you kind of said at the beginning that there aren't any other States doing this and, uh, we're not the first, uh, uh States have tried this before, uh, even going back, you know, a number of years. Um, 
And, uh, you know, just like with federal Medicare for all, just like with every other approach, I mean, nobody has achieved universal health care in the United States yet. Right. So we got a lot of like we got a lot of uh, losses on the record, unfortunately, but that's just sometimes how justice and progress is. I mean, how long did it take us to abolish slavery, say, right, or give women the right to vote. Um, so, you know, the fact that there are past failures doesn't mean that that's always going to be the case. But I personally would say that I kind of got into this game because Colorado got it on the ballot in 2016. And I was like, wow, that is so incredible. And I know that we have ballot initiatives here because we had just legalized uh, cannabis and gay marriage, right? And so I was like, this is such an obvious way to continue the work of Bernie Sanders. This is an obvious way to, um, you know, we expanded Medicaid, but this is like a much bigger expansion. It's a true universal expansion. And so, like I said, that idea was planted in my head and it wouldn't go away. And so now I'm working on it. But, um, you know, Maine ran one last year. They didn't make it. Uh, you know, COVID was tough for them, just like every other ballot initiative campaign. Um, but, you know, Maine and Colorado, I think, um, are, they have strong organizations that uh, have some experience in this space, could run them again. And I get messages all the time from people who see something as simple as like this poster was getting around on social media. And uh, sometimes people will, they'll just like quote tweet that with their governor, right? Or a local organization or something and say, hey, couldn't, couldn't we do that in Minnesota? Couldn't we do this, you know, in Florida or wherever I am? Um, and I really think that what would like growth of this movement would be multiple initiatives running in the same year, you know, and, and forcing the uh, medical industrial complex to like, you know, run interference against all of them at once, split their attention, split their resources. Like, man, I got to just keep putting out all these fires because people keep organizing for universal health care. Um, so I think that the, the, more, uh, the more that we can get involved in this, the more campaigns we can have running, the better. And um, I don't know if I've gotten a chance to mention it on this show, but I actually helped co-found an organization just last October um, it's very new, but we've had a number of actions that I'm quite proud of. And that's uh, or called Medicare for All Everywhere. And the idea is, you know, we think that this is a in order to win like federal federal Medicare for all. We need 50 states working on it, you know, in coalition with one another. And so we're trying to build that 50 state coalition that's working both at the state level and at the federal level. But most importantly, in coalition with one another um, to make this really too big to defeat. Right. So clearly you're working with the New York health people. You've spoken with the New York Health Act group, right? Like you're in with them. I think that that's really smart. Do you by any chance know how many states have um, ballot initiative process? Yeah, it's about, I think it's about 22 states and they, okay. they vary in terms of, uh, you know, how much direct power they give to the people. So in Washington state, we have very powerful ballot initiatives because citizens can put it on the ballot themselves. And then the legislature can't keep it off the ballot. They can't mess with it. And then the governor can't veto it. In other states, they have ballot initiatives, but the legislature is the, the, the legislature has to put it on the ballot, right? So it's sort of like a, 
well, we'll put on the ballot and you let us know if you don't want this, right? Um, other states, citizens can put it on the ballot, but ultimately it needs some amount of gubernatorial support. So, and even Washington has two different types of ballot initiatives um, that are a little bit different in their implementation. But uh, I still do believe that even in states that have more limited ballot initiatives, it's kind of like you said, you're still building the political support, right? And um, I think that, you know, one thing that's uh, really been informative for me with whole Washington has been seeing what it is to have a dual strategy in which we, we introduce this in the legislature every year and we build legislative support. Like I said, we have two different types of ballot initiatives. One is to the people, the other is to the legislature, and we're running to the legislature. And there's a couple reasons for it, the most obvious of which is that we get about twice as much time to gather the same number of signatures. Um, and so it's just a lot more feasible for us. But the other is that um, ultimately, you know, ultimately we recognize that this is going to go better with legislative support. It's just, we need to force them to do it. Um, and, and so I guess uh, what I'm getting at here is it's important to organize outside of the legislature and outside of candidates and build that political power to pressure them, whether you're trying to get it through the legislature or directly on the ballot. Um, and, and I think that like, for instance, if I could snap my fingers and get this on the ballot, it would make it a lot easier because I wouldn't have to gather the signatures, but we wouldn't necessarily have the sort of political mobilization to win on the ballot. Getting the political support ahead of time by collecting the signatures means that when we get on the ballot, we'll have a ton of people behind us to really, really, um, you know, make sure that the state, you know, the, the voters in the state hear about it and understand the issue kind of from our perspective rather than just the way the media covers it or uh, you know, the way that the um, insurance industry runs counter propaganda to it. Like we need to have our own, um, we need to have our own comms and a lot of people to boost it to win on the ballot. So um, I think that that combination of like Legislative support plus popular support is actually the most powerful combination. Yeah, I agree. I don't think people realize that let's say you pass the ballot initiative, everybody gets health care in the state, right? Let's say you pass that. If there's no legislative sort of like addendum with that, it's not going to be implemented properly. So you need the legislature to actually put into plan the specific rules that you're going to have. That has to be done at that level. It's not something we could sit and vote on every little thing. That's not going to work. So you need their cooperation. I think that's really important. I wanted to say something about something you said earlier about like distracting the insurance people with your strategy about going after a ballot initiative. And I think it's so smart. They're so busy bribing legislators and let, and let that bribe have less and less value as they realize that the people are able to do this without going through legislators. And I think that'll really, um, I think that's brilliant. That's what I think. We're speaking with Andre Stackhouse of Hull, Washington. Uh, you know, when we've spoken with, uh, you know, Georgia and other people in the past, 
Uh, one thing that I always find curious is I, I don't think our country is divided as um, corporate media would like us to believe that we are. I think once you get out um, outside of um, the western spur of Washington state, um, it becomes a very red state in many ways. Uh, but I'd like to believe that when we're not talking about wedge issues, LGBTQ, Second Amendment, uh, you know, uh, abortion, uh, when this con- concept of universal health care is brought up to people in the eastern part of the state, I'd like to think that the response has been somewhat positive. Is that fair to say? Well, what I can say about that is um, it's a little bit complicated. I, I frankly should talk to some of the people we have over there and ask them how it's going this year. But in terms of the way that that's gone in the past, uh, when we first ran this in 2018, I think we had a lot of support um, in Eastern Washington. And it was because it was widely seen as a nonpartisan issue. And in a similar way to how you actually saw Bernie Sanders do pretty well with some rural voters and with conservative Democrats or even conservative non-Democrats, you know, maybe independent identifying conservatives. Uh, What um, so in that year, I think it went really well. In subsequent years, especially because you saw so many Democrats in 2020 run on what they were calling Medicare for all, and it it became Bernie Sanders became very associated with sort of the Democratic Party. He became part of the Democratic Party, um, and then and then all of the other Democrats ran on Medicare for all, not because they were serious about it, but because they knew that it would be politically a political liability mm-hmm. to run against it. Um, and so that association between Medicare for all and the Democratic Party, I think, has soured a lot of Republicans in eastern Washington on the entire concept of universal health care, which is unfortunate. But what I'll say is, you know, if you can reach people before they have been kind of like highly propagandized, right, before they've been sort of um trained to to have a reflexively negative reaction to it you can really reach them just where they are right it's it's i pay so much for healthcare and then when i need it i have to just pay more right um so it, it is the sort of thing where um it has been something that's been organized against politically but in terms of people's openness to it from a policy or conceptual standpoint um it's been i think it's it's still totally open and and you could we get republicans to sign all the time um so you know i do think that there's hope there and i think that um especially if we get this on the ballot you know i I ultimately believe that when we get this on the ballot and we're facing you know millions of dollars of opposition the the message that's going to win is to make this very simple it's we are the nice people trying to get you health care this is insurance companies and big pharma trying to keep that from happening and private insurance does not, that, that is not, uh, you know, it's not a popular kid on the block. Um, so I think that, you know, we have the truth on our side and we have a pretty unpopular opposition. And I think that when we can draw those lines quite clearly as they are, um, we will do, um, pretty well. And I'm, I really do have to apologize. I'm going to have to just turn my camera off for a sec because um, we're actually running a fundraiser tonight. Uh, if folks want to hop in, it's a screening of a documentary called The, the Healthcare Movie. 
It's a few years old. I haven't seen it yet. Um, but you can pop over to uh, our website and RSVP and you can get in there. It's, it's starting yeah. now, which is why I have to go grab my phone and open the Zoom because apparently uh, they're locked out right now. So no, I'm going to just turn my camera cool. up. And- yeah. So I think it's, uh, I think that this conversation is the type of conversation, and I think Andre said it best, you know, the second it becomes partisan, they check out. They're like, yeah. oh, this is a Democratic Party? I'll forget. I don't want that. Um, yeah. If this is a, oh, uh, this is about all of us? This isn't partisan? Okay. I'm, I'm interested. And then yeah. they'll look past all of the nonsense. I think I mean, that's what's inherently better about ballot initiatives is that it, it is nonpartisan. And I think that when you go issue by issue, we know we agree on things. And, the, and, and what Andre said is right. It really depends on the level of programming that they have gotten at, up until the point they're introduced to actual facts. You know, like how far gone are you down the, you know, right wing talking point rabbit hole? Guy, there are, I've already read some of the uh, preliminaries uh, regarding these bills. And um, like the New York Health Act, for example, I don't know if it's, a, it's at least a one, if not a two year waiting period, if you're trying to move into the state. So you can't just decide, oh, now I'm going to move into New York and I'm going to get the health care. It doesn't it doesn't work that yeah. way. No, they'll have resident. There'll be residency requirements. And that's yeah. I think that's perfectly acceptable. I, think I that's agree. Perfectly legitimate. I don't I, and listen the people that the people in the state that work their ass off to get their health care. They deserve it. And the people in states where you're not working your ass off to get your state to make sure that you have health care. Sorry. Healthcare. Sorry. It's not that you don't deserve it, but you ain't getting it first. I'm sorry. Um, you know, and, and in Washington, it's it's based on the state's definition of residency, which is 30 days, which is not too bad. Um, no. And you can get it faster, you know, for instance, if you uh, have employment or something like that. But um, but the thing to keep in mind is, right, if you become a resident of the state, uh, even if even if you do it, like, let's say you move here because you have a really bad health condition and you need to move here and become a resident to get that medical care. Well, you know, you're you're part of the system now, right? You're paying our sales tax when you buy stuff. You're paying the payroll tax when you work here. You're paying for the things that pay for the health care. Um, and and so, um, you know, it there's always periods of adjustment, you know, and there's always um, there's always uh there's always things that are hard to anticipate, but this is not really one of them. And so I do expect there to be uh, some adjustment and, and I, but ultimately, you know, I think that, I think that if people move here because the state has a better healthcare system, we're all just going to be better and stronger for it. We'll have, we'll have more people to work jobs, right? We'll have, um, we'll have more people paying into our social services. We'll, we will become a healthier and more uh, humane community. Yeah. Have you had uh, any contact with Kashama Sawant uh, regarding her potential support for this initiative and what a difference her voice would make in Seattle in terms of getting people to support it? Because the truth is, between Seattle and Tacoma, I mean – if the word got out there enough, um, you know, you can pretty much cover 
a, a significant majority of the voter of the ballot uh, signatures that you're going to need in order to get this done. Um, I would think that yeah. having her impact would be tremendous. Well, Shama has been one of our biggest supporters from day one. Um, she's endorsed all the way back to I-1600 and, uh, and Socialist Alternative, I know, uh, in, in a formal capacity in some cases and in, in many informal capacities, has gathered many signatures for us and spread a lot of awareness of our campaign. Um, I will say that this year, you know, and, and this might be something that I need to work on, is that uh, we haven't had as much direct partnership this year. And, um, you know, coalition building is is hard and even... Even when you have an organization that's, you know, an endorsing organization, it still takes work to mobilize them. And so uh, we have a lot of partners. If you go to wholewashington.org slash, uh, I think it's endorsements or endorse. Um, but uh, we have a ton of endorsements and we are always getting more. We just got King County Democrats. That's the largest county in Washington, the one that includes Seattle. Um, and we just got physicians for social responsibility. And, uh, so, you know, mobilizing a coalition of that size, uh, is a fair amount of work, but we're always, we're always trying to grow it and mobilize it further. And I know that, uh, if I get in touch with, uh, Shama's people, they could have a huge impact on this campaign. So thank you for the reminder. Of course. Well, you also have two wonderful candidates running at the federal level there, Jason Call and Rebecca Parson, uh, we know pretty well. Uh, I would imagine that, I mean, I see uh, Jason all the time uh, mentioning Hall Washington. I would imagine that Rebecca does it as well. Uh, when people run for office, you know, that's one of the hallmarks, especially at the local level. I mean, it's great that people want to run for the federal seat. Uh, it is very, very difficult to win. But there is the possibility of winning a lot of these, you know, city council races, county commission races, uh, state house races, state senate races, where if they get a, if, while they're campaigning, they could subse uh, subsequently be running, also supporting Paul Washington and getting those signatures. I think that that's how you can also speed it along if that's not being done. Washington's also a big state for, uh, you know, colleges and universities, University of Washington, Washington State. Uh, there is a lot of colleges up in the Puget Sound area. Uh, you know, anytime you have an opportunity to have somebody on campus uh, focusing on that, quite frankly, I, I would imagine that could be done. Um, if you're if you're age 18 and you can sign, you know, there's a lot of high schools, I'm sure, as well. Has that have you found that to be successful? Yeah. So I uh, laid down a bit of groundwork last spring at the University of Washington. That's my alma mater. Nice. And um they have fantastic student organizations. There's one called um, Students for a Democratic Society. I think that's the biggest one. And uh, I, I literally, I was on campus and I was just there to, to present uh, actually back at the uh, information school where I got my degree. Um, but I, I brought some stuff with me and I was posting some lit around the campus. And then I saw these uh, posters for Students for a Democratic Society and there was a QR code. So I scanned it drops me in the discord. I say, Hey, everybody, you know, this is who I am. This is uh, why I'm here today. But if you're interested, you should get involved in the campaign was just walking up university way, or as it's known, uh, the Ave. So I was walking up the Ave for lunch, get stopped by these, these two students. They go, Hey, Andre, 
just saw you in Discord and they were like, send us your, send us the files for your lit. We have a printing budget. We'll get them all over the campus. Um, wow. So nice. it's, it's incredible working with, uh, I mean, I, I gotta say, you know, I uh, uh, wasn't that long ago that I consistently felt like the youngest, uh, the youngest volunteer in the room all the time. And now I have the honor of working with, uh, with people younger than me. And um, they are incredible at the degree to which they are ready to show up for this sort of thing and the kind of, the kind of skills they can bring to it. I mean, uh, you know, the, they are able to operate very independently. You know, a, a lot of the times I feel like, you know, it's so much uh, handholding to, you know, people aren't, taught how to be activists, right? So it's like, there's a lot of political education and stuff, but sometimes I meet these, these people who are just, uh, you know, sophomores in college or whatever. And they're like, yeah, hey, I got, a, I got plans. I got an idea. Can you just, uh, you know, give me the login to your TikTok or whatever, and I'll, I'll get you some good content. And, uh, it's, it's really impressive. Um, which by the way, good time to shout out. We have a TikTok now. I think we just got a thousand followers. If you're out there and you want to see, uh, something a little fresher than our Twitter stuff, maybe give it a follow. I think this is definitely going to be a ground uh, from the ground up type situation. One of our great uh, supporters, TM Martin, mentioning that Rashida Tlaib and the squad are not pushing Medicare for all. Yes, we know that the federal level, this is just not going to happen in any uh, capacity anytime soon. But as we've discussed many times before on our show, you know, the way that marriage equality, legalization of cannabis, they're always happening at the state level. The only way you're ever going to move it forward at the federal level is if you start picking off spots. Because, again, if you're able to get universal health care in just one state that can handle it budget wise, every state's going to be like, well, if they're only spending one hundred and twenty five dollars a month on average for health care and we're spending five hundred and twenty five dollars a month on health care because of the premiums and the deductibles and the co-pays and the fact that we have to go through this private system that doesn't actually do anything to improve healthcare. Uh, yeah, that's kind of messed up. I think we should have what they have because the thing that people seem to not really are still not fully grasping is that you don't actually need insurance. You just need doctors and nurses. They just wouldn't have to deal with the for-profit middlemen anymore. And the fact that you guys are doing what you're doing is absolutely fantastic. And obviously whatever we can do to help continue and spread the word I still think you should take your shot and try to get in touch with Warren Buffett and see if, uh, you know, if he would eventually at this stage in his life say, all right, what the hell, let them have their health care. You know, what the hell is right off his back at this point? Because yeah. um, you're not getting it from Jeff Bezos and you sure as hell ain't getting it from Bill Gates. But, you know, maybe Warren Buffett might be the, the one billionaire who might be agreeable that lives in Washington state that could potentially, um, you know, I mean, there's no reason not to try as far as I'm concerned. Andre, it's been a real pleasure having you on. If there's anything you want to plug before you go, please do. It's always a pleasure to have you on. We're always here to help uh, push the word for universal health care along. Thank you. And that all means so much to me. Uh, I'm continuing this uh, little mini media tour. So if you can get me on any other shows, that would be huge. I just want to have a few closing thoughts because there's a lot of, lot of things there. So one is that, um, you know, I personally uh, still organize for Medicare for all as much as I can and as hard as I can, because I do think that we can't always anticipate the way things are going to go. And it could happen. It absolutely could. And I could get my life back and my weekends back 
Um, but, uh, you know, on the whole topic of like the states leading in many cases, I mean, this was a tweet from the Washington Department of Health going around last Friday. And it says abortion was legal in Washington state before Roe versus Wade has been legal here for more than 50 years and remains legal now. Washington state has a long history of supporting the full spectrum of reproductive rights and will continue to do so. And I just want folks to think about how many people got the, the reproductive care that they needed because they could get it here, you know, and will continue to get it here, even though in many places that is a freedom that they have just lost. And so think about those people and the impact that it has on their life um, while you're out there. And then um, in terms of, uh, uh, sorry, not to ramble too much. I just wanted to say, cause you mentioned Warren Buffett. I don't think this is going to come from the billionaires, but I did have this like kind of silly idea a few years back, which was like, what if I wrote this book called like Bill Gates saves the world. And I, I write it in this way where I make him sound like 10 times cooler than he is in real life. And he basically just decides that we need universal health care. And then he bankrolls the campaign and we get it on the ballot and then we win. And then everybody loves Bill Gates because of how he did that. And just sort of, I wanted people to read this book and go, okay, well, this is obviously ridiculous, except like he could do that. Um, and just to uh, kind of create that pressure, get a little bit of egg on his face. But, um, but yeah, I mean, uh, in, in that note, like we absolutely do need donations. So wholewashington.org slash donate. Uh, these petition sheets are not cheap, especially if you do it the right way and go with a union printer. Um, actually, I don't know that that's more expensive, but the point is that uh, um, we only have one union printer in the state uh, that can do sheets of paper this big um, and print on both sides of them. It is one of our biggest expenses. Um, we would love to uh, be able to pay some of our staff, like your humble campaign director here, who is a volunteer. Uh, we would love to supplement our signature gathering with maybe some paid canvassers all in time if we can grow the campaign and raise the funds to do it. So I thank you all so much for having me on the show. Uh, folks, um, like I said, there's the fundraiser tonight. I'm going to be popping in there right after this. Uh, on July 29th, we're doing the screening of Healing Us out here in Seattle. I don't know how widely open that is. It's technically considered a private screening. And then on July 30th, we're going to do a March for Healthcare Justice through Seattle. Um, so if you want to swing by for that, um, it's going to be happening. And uh, we did it. We did a March last year. That was really great. And we're hoping to pull it off again. So thank you so much for having me. Um, and I hope to be back, you know, soon enough with uh, even more great news. Thank you so much, Andre. It was good to see you. Thank you, Andre. Well, you know, I think he's lovely. I think if we can, uh, you know, we'll put the word out uh, with some people to see what we can get him on. I mean, he definitely needs uh, some bigger platforms for sure. Um, not that there's anything wrong with ours. We like ours. No, but, we're small but mighty. Yes, we are small but mighty, and that's just the way it is. But it's always good when we can bring on a local candidate, and now he really is a local candidate. Uh, you know, we don't have a lot to hang our hat on in the state of Florida. No, and we definitely agree. Political coffee. And we're very happy to have you as a subscriber. Hope you enjoy the content. It's great to have you here. So check out gentleman, some of our past stuff. 
Like well, I always think people should do that. Yes. If you come on here, just go look at some of our past stuff because there's some a lot of interesting things. No, a hundred percent. And I think that that's uh, you know that that is very important. And so, without further ado, uh, he has been running for the U.S. Senate in the state of Florida for a couple of years now, but yeah. he has decided to do the. I don't even say the right move, but the strategic move, which we believe, which we believe in politics does need to be done. There is something to be said for building a non-corporate political movement and strategizing, knowing that there are places that you can run, be more effective, build the coalition and the following and the support, and then make something really impressive happen. So as it turns out, he is stealing our thunder because he's running in Florida's 23rd congressional district. But that's only because the district lines have changed. OK, but see, now we're still at Gen FL 23 on our Twitter handle. And now I guess in honor of our guest, Alan Ellison, we're going to have to change that to just generational change or just Jen. Just Jen. Just Jen. He is candidate for Florida's 20 new 23rd congressional district. Here in South Florida, Alan Ellison, welcome back to Generational Change. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> I like that background. That's that's pretty cool. I'm digging well, it. Thank you so much. <laughs> so talk about, I mean, we know, but talk a little bit about um, this new district, what's happening, where it's cut. Because for everyone who, who knows I was running in 23, this is a different district. This actually used to be, I guess it was, what, 22, sort of? It was, yeah, it was more what 22 was. And it's an open seat now, people, because um, Deutsch, Ted Deutsch is stepping down and not running again. So, Alan, talk a little bit about this district and, and who's in this race. Okay, so let me give you a list of all of the cities that's in this race. You have Fort Lauderdale, Wilton Manors, Oakland Park, Papineau Beach, uh, Deerfield Beach, Boca Raton, Coconut Creek, Margate, Parkland. Coral Springs and me. So this is uh, the new District 23 and me. Um, I am. Good job, I like it. It works. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I'm excited about this race. I, I actually have a, a business in uh, Boca Raton. So uh, it's a manufacturing business there. My wife, she's a physician uh, in, in Broward County. And we used to actually live there for about four years. So this is kind of like coming back home and, uh, you know, trying to bring the necessary change that's needed. Um, the, the people there, uh, they are in definitely in need of someone fresh, uh, with new ideas. That's going to actually, uh, work very diligently to make sure that all of the residents, uh, of the district is represented. This is a very unique district, obviously, yeah. during a primary of this nature, one that hasn't happened before. The district lines in this particular congressional district are somewhat similar to the ones that there were there before. Uh, obviously, we know who your two primary uh, opponents are going to be, Jared Mouskowitz and Ben Sorensen. Uh, this is going to be very competitive. Uh, I think that uh, based on what you bring to the table in terms of your platform, obviously you've run for office multiple times before, but considering who you're running against, what would you say are some of the things that you think define you as being distinctively different than your opponents and would ultimately make you better uh, a better representative for South Florida? Uh, I think the thing that makes me different is that I spend a lot of time focused on the issues that matter to the people. 
Uh, and I've, I have found that there are so many issues that are near and dear to people. I'm the candidate that holds the most town halls uh, of any candidate in this race. Uh, I'm the only candidate that has had direct uh, um, impact when it comes to uh, gun safety. I've literally been robbed. I have lost uh, two, cous- uh, two nephews, uh, one cousin and an uncle. So this is a very uh, unique situation. I am going to be the, the strongest and the most fierce fighter on gun safety issues. I'm the only candidate that has a platform uh, for people with disabilities, the only candidate that has a platform to uh, significantly and positively impact uh, gender pay inequality, the only candidate that is literally uh, putting together policies to curb the rate of veteran suicide. So. I would say that there is a, a great deal of difference. Um, I'm the, also the only candidate that has literally ran for over a year and six months statewide, look, looking and listening to all of the issues that uh, people are dealing with in the state of Florida. And I believe that Floridians need someone that's going to go uh, to the Washington to represent their interests. And there are so many people that simply have not had representation, not only in um, in District 23, but across the state and we need to have a change. Yeah, I think that based on that, the diversity of that district, it seems somewhat clear to me now, the representation that's been there and the representation that is sort of being thrust upon there now, if some of the more establishment people have their way, basically only represents a very small portion of the demographics of that district. And we know what we're talking about here. Like that represents a certain element of the population and sort of to hell with everybody else having representation. And I, and I think that your knowledge and your ground game over the past year is definitely beneficial to you because the difference is those guys, they haven't really been campaigning. They really haven't been campaigning up till now. So I think that you definitely have like a little bit of a head start on that. You definitely also bring up a very good point regarding the fact that this district, um, when I saw how, the, the district that Ted was representing. And I always thought it seems to me like he really is a, a and listen, I, I've, I've met Ted multiple times. He's, he's a good guy. Um, I don't think he's, you know, we can talk about some really bad representatives in this state <laughs> down here. Uh, but it was a district that I don't think was, he wasn't emblematic of what the district makeup really was. Correct. You know, Boca Raton and, Parkland are obviously where the lion's share of the money is, and then obviously parts of Fort Lauderdale. But like you said, there's Coconut Creek, Coral Springs, Margate. You know, these are working class areas, and it doesn't really seem like they've been getting the type of representation, much like uh, the district that may change dramatically now, obviously with Sheila Scherfless McCormick representing uh, the new uh, 20 as its card. Um, but the same is true here in what is the new District 25. Very often, the only concern, it seems like, with the Democratic Party is that they only want to cater to areas that have the most money. And that is something I'm sure you would agree really needs to change, as I'm sure you experienced when you were running for the Senate. Absolutely. You know, it's one of the reasons I I actually decided to run for the Senate. Uh, And it's because when I look around Florida, I realize that it is broken down between those who have and those who have not. And those who have not make up the greatest majority of Floridians. And so we definitely need to make sure that everyone has a voice in Congress. 
our campaign has always been about improving the quality of life for everyone, not just some, not just people who look like me, not just people who are in my party, not just people who are on the same social economic uh, class, uh, but literally for everyone. And I think, you know, with what has taken place in the state with gerrymandering and DeSantis literally decimating the, uh, the two congressional black districts that existed in the state of Florida, uh, now more than ever, we need representation that can literally represent everyone's interests and not just some. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I hope and I and I'm hopeful that people are starting to catch on to this now, that this is just like we're so dysfunctional and disproportionately like elitist and top heavy in this country in terms of who has the power and it needs to change. And I think that that district in particular could definitely use a little bit of a shift to the left. We have a um, friend of the show, Guy, asking, since you were talking about your platform, he's asking, thoughts on Medicare for All and Green New Deal? And I just think, Guy, Alan's very progressive, but if you want to just comment on those, I think you just, just we assumed that those were like something you supported because you were talking about more um, or less common th- talking points before. So t- would you talk to Medicare for All and Green New Deal? Absolutely. You know, I believe that we definitely need to support policies like universal health care, especially, you know, we got a chance to see the weaknesses in our health care system with COVID-19. We got a chance to see, you know, what it was what it was like whenever people uh, were placed in situations where they needed access to health care. And for the most part, there are a lot of people that simply had to do without. Uh, I believe that health care should be uh, a human right that is recognized in this country, uh, not only by our government, but by people who feel as if they have a health care plan and they're satisfied with it. I want them to feel like that everyone should have uh, a health care situation where uh, they if they feel dignified to be able to go to the doctor, because it is very uh, 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 degrading thing to be sick and not be able to go and see a doctor. It is very degrading. And I know that uh, for a lot of our veterans who have health care through the VA, a lot of them are having to travel so far. And I think there's a lot that we can do to close the gaps on how far our veterans are traveling when it comes to the Green New Deal. Uh, uh, New Green Deal, I believe that we should have policies that directly, positively impact Uh, our ability to curb our carbon footprint. Uh, It's a shame that it is being uh, branded in such a negative way. Uh, I think that if we are to move forward with any of those policies, I think that the best way to do that is to break them up and get them on an individual, uh, individual bills and just start like chopping away at each individual one so that we can actually get the, the, um, the policies enacted. Uh, And I think that would be a better strategy because with the way that it is phrased, it has taken on a negative branding by the Republican Party. Uh, And it's something that Democrats are not very skilled with in party leadership. Republicans are great with branding. Uh, Democrats are not so much. And I think that we have to change the narrative on how we uh, look at policy in the in the United States, and we have to make sure that we are not being reactionary, but we have to take the lead. Uh, we do represent the largest uh, demographic in this country, uh, but unfortunately, here in Florida, for the first time in Florida's history, Republicans have now 
taken over the voting bloc. Uh, I just looked this morning and crunched the numbers. Uh, Republicans outnumber Democratic voters in the state of Florida by 165,911 uh, voters. And I've been tracking this and they are outpacing Democrats by three to one. And so uh, when it comes to legislation that the country is in uh, dire need of, we have to make sure that we have the right messaging so that we can pull those who are on the opposite end of the political spectrum on board and then we can get these policies passed. We're speaking with Alan Ellison, who's running for the U.S. Congress, Florida's 23rd Congressional District. Uh, you brought up a really great point, and we're obviously going to have to go there. Um, I noticed, we noticed that, you know, you were running for the U.S. Senate for quite a while and building up a really strong support network and probably fundraising effectively as well. But the second that Congresswoman Demings got into the race, obviously all bets were off. Uh, the party made it very clear that they had no interest in a primary. They decided that you guys are just in the way. So get out of the way. Val is the nominee, and that's that. Uh, I don't think they fully realize how much effort you put into meeting voters and effectively becoming the type of candidate that, frankly, somebody like Val should be if she was really serious about beating Rubio, which uh, I think we're very clear that it's very unlikely that she will, especially with the way DeSantis is tracking and obviously with where the numbers are as a, as a unit. I would think if there was a legitimate primary and you had your fair share to run the race, even if you didn't win, that would have improved the Democrats' chances of winning. So how do you feel about the way that unfolded and how are things currently going now that you're running for a congressional seat that is an open seat? Well, you know, the thing is, is that for a year uh, and six months, I campaigned uh, as the longest running candidate in the race. Uh, and that was eight months longer than uh, Val before she jumped into the race. Uh, we saw a great deal of, um, of forward momentum in our campaign. Uh, we were raising a great deal of, of money in, in the first um, couple of months, first eight months. Uh, the other thing is we, we were able to build a massive coalition of volunteers and, and support. Uh, one day we got like 8,000 volunteers, like in one day. Uh, and so it was, it was building. But the thing is, is that when she jumped into the race, a lot of um, leadership, uh, inside of the Democratic Party began to stand on the sidelines. They didn't want to amplify anymore. And, uh, you know, I, I felt uh, like it was um, it was a situation where they were not recognizing that as a party, we have to build our bench. We have to look long term in terms of uh, making sure that we have candidates that can run down the road and candidates that can uh, run down ballot uh, and, and people just kind of like, you know, backed away. But uh, when when that took place, we had to shift gears. We knew that there were certain demographics of people within our party that we were not going to be able to reach because there are people that jump on the bandwagon. There are people that feel like they want to be on the right side of a winning a winning situation. Uh, very few people are principled enough to see that, OK, this candidate aligns with my ideas, I'm going to continue to support this candidate. Most people just jump on the bandwagon. It's like the bandwagon effect. And I understand that. Uh, and that was okay. So I knew that we had to go after a demographic of voters who could appreciate uh, that there is someone who is not only uh, trying to represent their interests 
in the future, but someone who is literally changing lives in the present. Uh, because I'm one of those kind of people, a political scientist, who don't give a whole lot of credit to politicians who vote on policy. I'm one of those kind of people who give credit to those who draft policy and change the narrative and, and those who are actually working to make positive impact in the lives of people right now. So in that year and a half, year and uh, six months time span, we were able to actually do the work of uh, a senator by helping constituents with the issues that they were currently dealing with. That meant uh, stopping eviction processes. That meant helping business owners with idle grant funding. That meant helping people to establish business, navigate the federal bureaucracy, uh, helping people to pay for drug treatment programs, get intense for homeless people. We had the most impact. And people who were principal who saw that, they remained with us. And because of uh, our engagement, because of our town halls, because of the way that we campaigned, uh, without even spending a single dime on ads, we were still able to reach 10 million people every 28 days across all of our social media platforms. And our numbers continued to grow. We continued uh, to uh, to build a campaign of, of, of volunteers and who I call change agents because these individuals who joined our team, they shared my spirit for being able to help people. So whenever someone, and it didn't matter if they were in the state, they could be, they could have been anywhere in the country. If they had a problem, our team was trying to solve their problem in 48 hours, which is actually one of the job uh, duties of Senator or representative and that's constituent services. So yeah, I don't give a whole lot of credit to people who only vote on policy. You have to also enact policy, you have to draft policy and you have to provide constituent services. So I know a lot of people, whenever they need help, they contact their representative or their congressperson only to get a no phone call uh, returned back to them, only to get a canned email response or, or simply just be ignored. And that's not why we send these individuals there. And so I don't want to be like them. I want to be like me, the helper that I am. And so running for office is really just the way to maximize my gift of helping people. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, we ran our campaign that way. I mean, we ran a service based campaign. I think that if you want a particular job, you need to do that particular job. The, the ironic thing is that candidates like you and what we did during our campaign is actually not how that job is usually done. Uh, most of these people spend, they're supposed to be uh, at their home like half the year and in D.C. half the year. Uh, we never see our representative unless she's showing up for a photo op or specifically giving a speech. I don't see them serving anybody. So that whole service aspect is like, I mean, that's what we're trying to do. And I really appreciate that you get that and that you were working that on a state level. I think that's really impressive because that's what it's all about. And that's how you're going to build a long coalition of people. Absolutely. How can people get involved? And obviously, if the website has changed at all, please let us know. You have a very impressive following on Twitter and TikTok. Obviously, that is very helpful in terms of engagement. But now it becomes much more on a micro level, which is great. Uh, you obviously have uh, Florida Atlantic University. Um could be potential for a lot of uh, grassroots support there. And then obviously there's a lot of events that uh, Jen and I have frequented, even though it was out of the district in downtown Fort Lauderdale. Um, 
you know, there are maybe not as many during the summer months because things uh, get a little hot outside. Don't get um, me started on the fun in Wilton Manors. Yeah. Well, Wilton Manors, always well, yeah. a good time in Wilton Manors. Well, listen, between between us, uh, obviously, everyone's going to hear this now. Uh, but if you haven't had the opportunity to connect with Elijah Manley, I uh, would highly recommend that you do. Um, and that will definitely uh, provide you. Um, you know, good opportunity to meet people, particularly in Wilton Manors. I think that that is uh, an area, uh, you know, definitely to uh, to get to. But I, I know you're going to get everywhere. So uh, I am likely or more inclined to canvas or go to events in Wilton Manors than I am to a lot of places. I'm just putting that out there. <laughs> OK, well, you well, you'll have to tell Alan about your favorite uh, candy shop. Or, oh, yeah. Or, well, that is the best candy. Shop. It's the best Broward candy shop for sure. Okay. Yeah, uh, the, the the licorice and all the... It's, to the moon. it's called To the Moon, but yeah. To the Moon, yeah. Okay. All right. So, Alan, how can people get involved? Uh, what is the... Is the website changed? Is it... Uh, what is it now? The website is changing. Uh, there is a lot that has changed on the website. Uh, we're going to put a little bit more focus on the issues that matter to the people in uh, Congressional District 23. Um, we're also changing up our swag shop. So, our merch shop Ooh. is going to be the district. And so I, I'm very excited about that because uh, we've put a lot of energy into uh, creating all of these uh, different uh, swag, um, you know, uh, pieces or whatever. We have shoes, um, dresses, shirts, hats. Um, you know, we have a lot of good stuff, but people can join our campaign uh, via the website. Uh, we are always interested in, in working with change agents uh, because we believe in service. We believe in being a servant leader in the community. Uh, so you can do that at allenellison.com. Also, uh, follow us on every social media platform. Uh, we're on TikTok, Instagram, uh, Twitter. We even have a Roblox account as the first political campaign in the entire world to have a Roblox account. And then I was followed by uh, a couple of my opponents uh, but yeah, we we do a lot with the children over there because we want to uh, make sure that we are inspiring the next generation of future leaders. Uh, and so that platform has about two billion um, subscribers on the platform, and we have probably about maybe thirty thousand of those young individuals who are helping us to amplify our message. Um, I know one time I put a Roblox character up there and it started trending on like five different social media platforms. So even though they can't vote, they're learning political strategy, they're learning political action. And so we're happy about that. Uh, but we're always in need of amplifiers, writers. Uh, we're in need of, of graphics, phone bankers, um, text bankers, and anyone that just want to be a part uh, of a winning strategy. So yeah, I think everybody should go to AllenEllison.com. Yeah, guys, follow all the social media, at least follow all the social media, share the information. If you can give, give. If you can volunteer, volunteer. It's really important. Yes, because let's face it, um, if what's happened over the past few days is any indication, even if you are scared or vehemently disagree with the Supreme Court decisions, what it really should tell you is um, – this has been a long time coming. We are a country that less than half its population votes. Uh, don't even get me started on the fact that there is still the uh, the Hillary liberals who want to vote shame people who decided to exercise their vote and not the 100 million people that don't even vote. Uh, that And what's amazing is you had such a 
people really think we had like this incredible voter turnout in 2020. And in some ways, yes, but you still had 82 million people who didn't vote that could have. So our country can only be taken back if people at the local level get involved the way that they need to. And what you're trying to do, Alan, is obviously where it starts, much like what Jen did. So guys, please go to alanellison.com. If nothing else, maybe get a nice piece of merch. That'll definitely help the campaign. But of course, uh, phone banking, text banking, canvassing, if you're here in South Florida, whether in uh, South Palm Beach County or, of course, through a significant portion of Broward County, gives you an opportunity to get involved and definitely a hands-on candidate, which I think we can all appreciate. So with that said, Alan, it's always a pleasure. We're wishing you nothing but the best. I have no doubt we're going to be seeing you at some point down the road. I was just going to say, I know we'll see you at some event or some such thing, and I'd be so happy to do so. So whatever you, you've you got going on, I'm here for another five weeks, but then I'm back. Yeah, she's back, baby. So you'll be back for the beginning of, uh, ironically, you'll be back for the home stretch. You'll be back yeah. at the beginning of August. So I am sure there will be tons and tons of events at that time uh, leading up to the, I think it's the, what is the primary day? August 23rd? 23rd. 23rd. I got it. Okay. See, I, I've given that mic. So 23. That, uh, 23 and me or 23 and 2020. 23 and 18. <laughs> a winner is uh, certainly a, a, amongst us. Uh, if not now, then certainly soon enough. Alan, thank you so much. Have Thanks, a wonderful Alan. evening. We'll definitely be talking to you soon. Thank you both very Bye. much. Pleasure's ours. Have a good one, brother. Well, Jen, He's lovely. But, you know, it's it's also a matter of he's just he's a really good candidate. You yeah. know, I thought that I, I thought that the first time I'd actually the whole Val Demings thing when that went down annoyed the shit out of me. I was not pleased about it. I think but is it really that surprising. No, not at all. It's not at all surprising. And so, you know, and I'm perfectly content to watch uh, her lose, which, you know, however they want to play that game. And it's disappointing for so many reasons. And I and I agree with what Alan said, that people want to be supporting who they perceive is going to win. And when you have the establishment people boosting you up, that's um, where it gets people. It's like you want to support the winner. And that's what and, even in, and, and, you know, even in the circumstance that we're looking at right now, where it's painfully <laughs> obvious that, you know, Charlie Crist is going to be the nominee for the Democratic uh, gubernatorial race. There was no putting the thumb on the scale in that race. That was an opportunity for all three candidates to make their case. And I told you when I was at the Dem convention, the, 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 the gala, if you will, that was a year ago. And they're going to be another one. In a, in a couple of weeks in uh, Tampa. But the one that was in Orlando, I remember I came back, I told you, I said, oh, Charlie's going to be the nominee. Like, that's just obvious. Like, yeah. once they start, like, really connecting with voters. But everyone had ample opportunity to make their case. And even in the case where it's clear that Charlie's going to be a nominee in a legitimate primary, you still have a candidate like Nikki Freed who doesn't want to necessarily – you know, find where, you know, maybe another path might be more effective or potentially try to boost somebody like Charlie, which an extension would actually be boosting Val Demings as well. Uh, we are a very discombobulated party here in Florida. I just in general am extremely averse to the idea of the party shoving a candidate down people's throat in a primary. I, yeah, but I, the problem, 
but the problem is, is that that's what they always do. No, this I know. And that's my thing. biggest problem. And that's one of my biggest problems with the Democrats and most certainly in the state of Florida is that even in a race where we're not even talking about challenging an incumbent, you know, like, first of all, I don't think that should be, you know, banned and looked down on either by them. But this is not even that. And they still feel the need to like prop up who they perceive as the more chosen establishment person, knowing full well that that is not who like the people that are really on the left would ever want. No, but again, uh, that's the way it's been for a long time. And because of the fact that so many people do not get involved politically, there isn't that desired change. But the more you know, again, I still think that that's probably Bernie's greatest legacy was his um, his ability to convince a lot of people to get involved, you know, to run locally uh, like you and like Alan. Uh, I think that over time you build up a big enough army, if you will, where it will overwhelm the establishment because the establishment is a paper tiger. The only reason they win is because they have a very old voting block that's consistent and they have the money. Most people don't vote. That's the key point because that's most people too. don't see a reason to vote. No, that's and true. They don't. I and didn't I run think, because Bernie, I ran because of you. Oh, well, I ran, I asked you to run because of Bernie, because I thought that, you know, he really was correct that, you know, even though he's not doing all of what we would want him to do, he was inspiring enough to get a lot of us at the local level to start doing what's necessary. And we are heading in that direction. It, you know, a lot of people look at it and think, well, we haven't really accomplished anything. I mean, yeah. I mean, obviously I think Bernie did not go far enough, especially in 20. Um, but ultimately uh, there will be other opportunities. Somebody else is going to run as a progressive for president in 24. There will be other people that are going to break through at the congressional level. I really hope more people understand that if you really want to get things done, you need more people on the city council, county commission, you know, like that, um, that, that girl in uh, Georgia, um, forgetting her name right now. Mariah Parker. Mariah Parker. I mean, she's a county commissioner. She's awesome. And she is awesome. And she is somebody who makes a real impact. And to me, that's really where it's at. I know there's a lot of people who want to run for certain offices and they have these theories of grandeur that they're going to get there. You know where I stand on some of them, Jen. Uh, You know where I stand on some of them. And so I do think that everything is a learning experience and uh, we will eventually get there for sure. Uh, Our Wednesday show is a little up in the air in terms of time and in terms of are we definitely going to have our, we are supposed to have uh, a pair of guests from, again, local, uh, friends from Surfside, Ileana Salazar and Tina Paul, former city council members of the town of Surfside. Seems like a lot of bad things are going on in that town. We've got a lot to share with us. Well, uh, look, we're coming up on, if we haven't hit it, the anniversary, the one year anniversary, if we haven't already hit it. I don't we remember. Just hit it the, we just did it a couple of, we actually hit it the day that Roe v. Wade was overturned. Okay. So it was one year anniversary of the collapse of the building in Surfside. And for people who are interested, there is not an investigation and there's not going to be a further investigation. No, because why would you want to let people, yeah, because why would you want to let people know that uh, there is corruption at the local level where people- Well, 
I, I mean, I just think people don't realize what happens in these cases. So what happened in this case, well, I mean, in the general gist of it is that they settled they, the, with the whatever, all the different families are getting chunks of money. And because they're settling, there's no need to further investigate. And the two commissioners on that city council are the, were that were wanting to further investigate were voted out because the developers that have basically taken over that city council want to just keep developing. They don't That's want true. things like this being further investigated. Can't get in the way of the bottom line, baby. That's capitalism run amok. And ultimately, what is going to be its demise? Because as we stand right now, we're heading towards a demise of the capitalist system in our country. It's too clear. Well, um, we just took away our, the rights of more than half the country were just impacted. Yeah. So you better believe that something dramatic is going to happen. We'll see what happens, guys, uh, but we will be here on Wednesday. It'll be an interesting show. It always is. We hope you enjoyed it tonight. Remember to smash that like button. And if you're so inclined, as we so often like to ask you, because let's face it, we're moochers and, you know, we definitely want uh, as much support as we can get. Go to patreon.com forward slash generational change. It'll help Jen perfect her uh, graphic design capabilities. As you can see, she dressed up blue in a uh, in a too cute a fashion, Lou has got those. Remember those old sunglasses, guys? It's well, the John Lennon glasses. It's the John, John Lennon glasses. glasses. She's hey, rocking. So is Alex there? Yes, he's here. Okay. So, um, yeah, guys, Alex is a, a friend. He's helping us with our show. He's helping grow our TikTok that we've been working on. And uh, we'd 2, like to- 2,200 subscribers. <laughs> right, guys. So we're really trying to get our TikTok up to 10,000, but we want to be able to keep paying Alex. And right now yeah. we barely make any, I mean, we, we're, it's pitiful, guys. So if you would throw a few bucks our way so that we could kind of keep growing, getting better guests, and just really kind of building what we're trying to do. It would be really helpful. Patreon.com forward slash generational change for as little as five bucks a month. You can help us improve our standing. Ten bucks a month, you can improve us even further. And 25 bucks a month gets you one of these bad boys to go with it. And I'm sure there's other things that we can do. The next generation, as, as Mario likes to say, uh, yes, William. You know, I've been posting, like, I've been periodically posting things onto our Patreon that are not up and running on YouTube yet. So we haven't done anything that's exclusive content yet for our Patreon. I would like to do that. But I've been putting things on there earlier than they're going up on YouTube. So people sure. on Patreon are getting earlier access to our stuff. I am totally willing to, like, start having, like, members only, um, like, calls again. We tried that. No one was really interested, but I'd be really happy to do that. And also we're willing to take like suggestions for content. We did get um, a, a recommendation for someone named, and I wrote it down because I then put the book, I uploaded the book for myself. It was Lily Geismer. And I forget who it was. One of our Patreons had suggested that to me. So like we, I do listen and I do, um, I find this interesting. So if you guys have suggestions, but uh, yeah, please be a Patreon. She said, please, and thank you. And so we hope you guys enjoyed it. Um, again, uh, it is going to get uh, worse before it gets better. And obviously the separation of church and state we knew was going to dwindle uh, significantly under this uh, Supreme Court. But you know what? There's a lot of people losing faith in the Supreme Court, and that's not good. And, uh, you know, the, the worst part about it is not the Supreme Court. It's the fact that we have as feckless a president as you could have ever had for this moment. 
and that's unfortunate. So, uh, but don't worry, we're totally coming back in 24, Jen, because we're making America great again. Again, yeah, I've heard, I've heard your spiel. Yeah, although I wouldn't bank on it at this point because it looks like our governor is making his way up the line. He's beat Trump in multiple polls now. Yeah, that's not a good sign. No. So we will see who really makes America great again. Unless there's a progressive who comes along and no, that term has been co-opted, non-corporate candidate. So that said, we appreciate you guys. Thank you so much for your support as always. See you Wednesday. Bye. Al. Thanks for watching. If you want to support our mission to transform politics into service, please like this video, subscribe, follow us on social media, and consider joining our Patreon, where you'll get early access to our interviews as well as other exclusive content. Links are in the description. Peace out.